This is TechSnap, episode 354. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We recorded this episode on February 1st, 2018, and it's brought to you by our three great sponsors, DigitalOcean, IX Systems, and Ting. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is the admin, the teacher, and the presenter, Mr. Payne, Mr. Wes Payne. Hello, Wes. Hello, Chris. We have many good things to get into today. Let's start out with sort of a fun one. Voice commands and voice interaction are becoming more and more of a common way to interact with your computer and your devices. And as you would expect, that also means they're becoming more of an attack vector. In particular, a lot of these technologies use machine learning algorithms in the background to, to you know, automatically try to understand, maybe even transcribe your speech. And now those algorithms are under attack In particular, we're looking at some new research done by Nicholas Carlini and David Wagner, which they call audio adversarial examples. Wow. Wow. So they have constructed targeted audio examples that that target speech-to-text transcription neural networks. So given – here's how it works. Given an arbitrary waveform, so, so anything at all, any sort of sound, they can make a small change to it that when when added back on top of that original waveform causes these algorithms to to transcribe it as any text they want. So it's like machine learning subliminal messaging. Right. So this is building on some prior work, um, and this is sort of exactly what you're, you're getting at. They were able to construct hidden voice commands. So audio that sounded like noise to you and I just sounds totally like noise, but when transcribed by one of these neural networks... They could pick whatever phrase they wanted, and that's what would be transcribed. Wow. Okay. So I have uh, I have the original, and I have an example with that fuzz. Let's take a listen. Here's the original. Without the data set, the article is useless. All right. So that sounds pretty normal. Here's a sample with this subliminal machine learning messaging baked in. Without the data set, the article is useless. You hear it there. It just sounds like compression warble. Right. It's not clear that it's anything malicious. It's, it's certainly You can certainly detect some distortion. But if you hadn't just heard the original, and especially if you were hearing it over maybe not the best connection. Yeah. And then the background, what they said was, OK, Googs, browse to evil.com. Yikes. And as you were saying, Wes, the same is true for music. So here is the original music with no speech added. Now, here is the same music with OK, Googs, browse to evil.com. So how is this attack working, Wes? Yeah, it's interesting. So they're actually using machine learning techniques to attack other machine learning techniques. Um, <laughs> at a, at a high level here, they're constructing um, – so you're always constructing loss functions. And so this is basically – they're trying to measure how well their input file is being transcribed as their target text, right? So they, they basically set this up and it returns a real number as output. And that output, it's going to be small when it's transcribed close to what you want. And it's large when it's far away from your desired transcription output. Um, then they just set this up with some gradient descent, throw it through algorithms that make small tweaks to the input um, the input waveform until they get as close as they can to the output they desire. Am I correct uh, in assuming that they were using the new Mozilla DeepSpeech and Common Voice data set to do this? Yes, they are. Mozilla's been, you know, kind of stewarding a lot of work in this area. There's now a lot of, you know, open access, open source techniques and tools. So it just takes some, you know, clever, hard work. And this is what we get. It seems like a way you could effectively use this is to have one of these sound clips, say, with music or in a ringtone on your phone, and then troll your friends by ordering extremely expensive things via their Echo. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's all kinds of examples you can think of, and none of them are a lot of fun for your unsuspecting victim. Yeah, and as more and more devices get connected to voice assistance, things like automation systems, lights, heaters, it actually becomes more and more of a serious attack vector. Right. Yeah. You know, like these are kind of just just fun examples. But I hope that the people who are making and and working on these technologies take these attacks seriously. Um, And I think it's something we might have to start thinking about as consumers. We're already, you know, you always hear the warnings, don't just curl that bash script. Well, pretty soon you're going to have to be careful about what you play on your speakers as well. Does this mean that we're essentially entering an arms race between machine learning? If you have machine learning against machine learning, um, this seems like it's not going to end well. No. Well, and then they actually already have machine learning to refine and generate machine learning algorithms so uh, before long us us human podcasters will be obsolete 
You know you've got my attention on this next story when it involves WordPress, keyloggers, and cryptocurrency miners. Tell me about this one, Wes. Yeah, as you know, WordPress is a frequent target. Um, yeah. We'll talk about a couple of things maybe you can think about doing if you are unlucky enough to have to host WordPress. That's me. Yeah, that's me too. Uh, sad to admit it, but it's true. I would say, anyway, there's all kinds of attacks, and more and more these days we've been seeing attacks that want to leverage unsuspecting visitors' browsers to mine cryptocurrency, in this case, Monera. So this is another example of an attack where someone's taken over WordPress, they've installed some malicious JavaScript that gets downloaded by the client, and then wastes your CPU usage, your power bill. Yeah, what are you trying using to mine, for? Yeah, trying to mine cryptocurrency to benefit them. Sure. But this is worse They've added on a keylogger. Well, that's not wonderful either. No, no, it's certainly not. And you have to be careful as the admin here. Um, so even though they've already compromised your box, if you go and try to log into your own WordPress to administer it or try to get those latest security updates, even before you hit enter, the JavaScript's grabbing all those key presses and right. sending them back. So if you use that same admin password on other sites, you're kind of screwed. So this reminds me of a story that we covered on Linux Action News recently about OnePlus having their website impacted by something that monitored users' inputs and grabbed their credit card information as they were buying OnePlus phones. And if you had used PayPal or you had used a credit card that was saved on file, you were not a victim of the attack. Only the users that were buying a OnePlus phone that entered their credit card information were impacted by it because it was simply just grabbing their keystrokes. I wonder, I wonder if these two things are connected because at the time when OnePlus made their public disclosure, they didn't say how their website got infected or what with. But I, I don't know if it was this, but it is a common problem. Well, then it sounds like we need to talk about some ways that uh, you can secure your WordPress installation. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Where do you start with something like this? Okay, well, this is maybe a little bit cheating, but if you don't have to use WordPress, don't. There's a ton of great static hosting toolkits, sites, ways you can set it up on like static infrastructure or even something like S3. Um, that just gets you out. The less state you have, if you're just generating something from GitHub and pushing it automatically, it's a lot harder for people to compromise. That sounds nice. Um, another option is if you don't feel like you're up to the task of managing WordPress, keeping up with the updates, configuring it correctly, if you can afford it, pay someone else to. There are competent people out there that can that can do this. Uh, there's plenty of websites that will do it. Now, obviously, there you need to take on the responsibility of vetting those sources, choosing you as you want. But something like WordPress.com may be exactly what you need. Yeah, if I recall, TechCrunch.com is hosted there. Right. Other than that, I would say try to leverage. I mean, you know, one, follow all your standard security things that you're going to be wanting to do for a host. Uh, if you are actually accessing the hosts, make sure you have you know strong keys set up. Don't allow just anyone in there. Another thing I think is essential is making sure you can quickly recreate it. So, you know, you have your database, make sure you have backups, you have wherever you're storing all of your static content. Maybe you've got using a plugin that syncs that to S3. Maybe you're storing it on an NFS share. I have a I have a WordPress plugin that just syncs it all to a Dropbox folder. See, that's perfect. That way, what I'm getting at here is in the case that you are compromised, you really want to be able to quickly recreate, build new hosts have a start from a clean slate. So make sure you keep everything in version control and ideally have a way that you can, you know, through API calls or some tool sets, automatically deploy new hosts. Um, you can use something like Amazon Elastic Beanstalk. Um, I know DigitalOcean has some some tutorials and guides for doing it on their infrastructure. In what way would you use Beanstalk? Sure. So uh, Elastic Beanstalk is an AWS service. It's really meant to be like a, you know, a developer-focused, easy-to-use platform. So you don't have to worry about where this code runs, and they have PHP support. So basically what that means is you ship them like a zip file of your, you know, your PHP application, and they spin up hosts automatically with Apache configured to run PHP. They just dump it on the system. They've written all the bootstrap scripts, handled all that stuff, and then it just starts the services, spins up, and runs. And then, of course, they use you know all their fancy AWS stuff, so it spins up on EC2 instances that are in a you know an auto scaling group. You can configure all of that so that you know if you just want one static host, you can do that. If you want it to auto scale with demand, and then configure exactly how that scales and unscales and and all of those operations that's all available the part i really like is that it becomes driven from version control so um, Mm. in particular this uses efs which is amazon's nfs offering so in this way you basically you can have multiple ec2 instances that are all sharing one attached file system so you don't have to worry about that and then you can configure efs backups um, and then rely on its you know, availability, that combined with their ease of deployment means that a lot of times you can configure it if you, ha- you know, configure a little bit of automation, you make some changes in Git, push, you know, 
push that up to your to GitHub or wherever you keep it. That automatically causes a new deployment, new host spin up with exactly your new code running. If they you can configure health checks, so if they pass, the old instances are terminated and you have a bland, brand new fleet. And and you know it's not necessarily like those hosts may still be vulnerable if you have a bad config, if you haven't maintained your security, but you just you don't have this one static host that's running weird software that has maybe has state configuration drift. All of those can help make you stay more secure. Well, the other thing that that, that would solve is you are going to be frequently updating if you're using WordPress. Not only do they have lots of updates for security issues and for features, but they also, um, the plugin authors have a lot of updates. And one of the things that we ran into in JB, as the site's grown over the years, we've integrated in different performance plugins. And these are great. They can flatten the website out and make it more static. It can pre-generate a lot of that stuff. And it can tie in with Scale Engine CDN, which is fantastic. So we can push... We can push some assets out to the edge. These are all good things that help in performance, which is good for WordPress in general. And I bet you have a few tips. But I'll tell you, Wes, it makes it, while fundamentally it makes our site more responsive, it's also the single source of breakage when we do upgrades. And so this plugin, while fundamental to the operation of our website, almost breaks every other WordPress upgrade. And when it breaks, the site doesn't render properly. Things don't show up on the website. And it sometimes can take us a little while to discover it because it can be small things in the background. Right. Like it could be on like episodes that are 100 episodes ago. So it's way back in the back catalog. And it takes forever to discover those. And so what you're describing there, I think, would solve this problem to some degree if we could just switch over to the new version of Fired Up once everything's passed a check. Yeah, you know, that really does, it relies on um, some of the, the fancy cloud-style workflows that we have available us to available to us these days. Which we didn't when we started this. Right, and so that can be, you know, that can be a real mental shift. When you know that you're starting with a clean slate, there's just a lot less things that you have to worry about. So what are some of the things you do for performance on your WordPress sites? Number one, you know, really really prune down your list of plugins. There's also a couple a couple tools you can find uh, to, you know, check your performance. It'll even break it down by plugin, show you what you're spending time rendering. Um, you'll be surprised to find that there can be some plugins that really slow down uh, what's going on. If you can't, you know, sometimes you just, that plugin is the core of your site. It's really how you're doing everything. If you can't get past that, then, you, so definitely, you know, as you mentioned, pushing static assets and other things up to CDNs um, closer to the edge. If you if you don't have a lot of people actually signing in, if you're not doing you know per user generated pages, uh, then you might also consider running a local cache, something like Varnish, uh, especially if you do have some really rather slow plugins. Really, as we you know as we sit here discussing this, it it's all very tedious. And WordPress is a super powerful platform, but it really it really does trade some ease of creation, content delivery, content creation on the creator side for a lot of work and a lot of checkboxes and checklists you have to go through on the admin side. So if if you're if you don't have to do that, if you have people, you know, if your content creators are okay with a little a little more, you know, actually getting in there with with HTML and CSS, if they're okay with learning a new way to implement websites or they can maybe they can just write stuff in Markdown and use, you know, use something like Hugo or Ghost that's going to be a lot easier and a lot more sustainable. DigitalOcean.com. Create an account and use our promo code SNAPOcean. It's a platform to spin up infrastructure in seconds. Everything's SSD-based. Data centers all over the world. And you know if you've been listening to the show that we're big fans of DigitalOcean. We use it for all kinds of different tasks. And now they have new optimized droplets. These droplets are still powered by their dedicated hypervisor threads from the best-in-class Broadwell and Skylake CPUs. But now they have additional memory and local SSD disk for the same price. And they're looking for all kinds of interesting things in the future, too. So stay tuned to that space. I just upgraded my system, went in there, shut it down. DigitalOcean recently redid their pricing structure, made it an even better value. I turned my system off, hit the upgrade button. Five minutes later, I'm logged in. I've doubled my RAM and my storage. It's incredible. DigitalOcean.com. Use our promo code SNAPOcean and try out a $5 rig two months for free with a secure and reliable infrastructure, 99.99% uptime, predictable pricing, and single-click deployments of entire application stacks or just the base system. DigitalOcean.com, promo code SNAPOcean. Our next couple of stories might just be the very definition of edge cases, but I wouldn't be too surprised if there isn't a little something all of us could pull out 
for our own systems. So let's start with Cubes. It's an open-source OS based on Zen, X, and Linux. It's designed to provide strong isolation for desktop computing. We reviewed it on the Linux Action Show back in the day, and they appear to be facing a major re-architecture. Yeah, so if you've used the Cubes OS of today, you know that it's it's really a neat distribution. It's it's based on, on Zen, and the idea here is that you really can't trust just the software in general. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in particular, to be secure, you really need to have separate different privileged domains. And so in Cubes, they accomplish this by running pretty much everything they can in different virtual machines. So right. you start up, you know, you start up Zen, uh, and then you have you have a GUI virtual machine, you have a network stack virtual machine, and then you have a bunch of per app VMs. And then Cubes works some magic behind the scenes to tie this all together into one desktop. So you feel like you're using all these applications in, you know, like a normal machine, but under the hood, they can only see data that's for them, and they're protected by the strong protections of a hypervisor. But perhaps those protections haven't been strong enough. Right. So, but as we've seen in recent years, hypervisors are increasingly becoming the subject of attacks and research on exploitation. So much of the cloud runs on VMs. This is this is big business now. Um, so, in particular, that's making the Cubes project consider. Are we are we relying too much on a hypervisor? Plus, they've had some other concerns in particular, like it's kind of a lot of work to get Cubes OS. How do you get users to use it? They have to wipe their machine and then use this really unfamiliar technology, even if you're just, a, you know, already if you're a Linux user, it's a whole different paradigm of how to interact with the machine. And so you know, this they can limit adoption. It can make it hard to use. And if your goal is to be able to bring this practical security to the masses, it's, it's kind of in your way. Good point. And also, you have to figure as the market's moved on since Cubes OS came around many years ago, and they may be saying, they being the market, that containerization is sufficient for application isolation at the graphical level. And other applications like Chrome are implementing their own sandbox. And there may be less demand for a desktop that is isolated out through VMs. Boy, I could sure see something like this on the server side. Yeah, so that's that's a, that's one example here. Cubes in the cloud. Really, as they've emphasized, the essence of Cubes is not like in its current implementation. It's not about the Zen hypervisor. It's not even about this notion of isolation, but it's really about the careful decomposition of different workflows, devices, and applications across different secure, containerized, compartmentalized areas. And that's why we wanted to pull this into the TechSnap program right there, because this is a fascinating idea that I think a lot of us that are building networks and have to run different applications, especially applications we don't trust the vendor to patch reliably, we don't think are even necessarily configured correctly, or perhaps the vendor needs remote access to. Having a system like Cubes in the cloud, or maybe Cubes on your own infrastructure, provide your own cloud, could be a really nice solution to answer some of these mistrust issues. And it may make it a lot easier for people to get started in the Cubes ecosystem. If you don't have to wipe your laptop, you just go, you know, spin up some VMs on a cloud service. That's a lot easier. I also saw in their blog post they're discussing a hybrid mode. Yeah, this is an interesting notion. You know, we were just talking about it on the cloud, but you might already be kind of thinking like, well, okay, well, does the does the GUI run in the cloud? What about the the admin domain? How does mm-hmm. how does that work? And so those those are some problems to be solved. But particularly in the GUI, there's probably going to be some increased latency unless you live in the data center. Um, so they're also considering a hybrid mode. Uh, some of the ideas behind this hybrid mode is that, like, for starters, not everyone trusts the cloud, right? So you may have some trusted hardware. You want to run some applications locally on your trusted environment. And then for the rest, you can, you know, offshore those onto other people's computers. Uh, another another use case, of course, would be just a faster GUI for you locally, pull, mm. pulling into some of your applications, maybe the ones that need more compute power from the cloud. One of the things they're excited about of, you know, the possibility of this hybrid mode is that the user might not even have to be particularly aware. You know, if you were if you were set, getting this set up on a machine, you could choose your cloud integration, get it all set up in the background, and then just, you know, have some VMs run locally, have some pushed in the cloud. You can set it for someone else. You've already got their credit card hooked up to AWS, and then it just works. They don't have to worry about you know not having enough resources. If you configure most application VMs to run in the cloud, then you can scale however you need. Another sort of natural extension from this is uh, what they're calling air-gapped, in quotes, uh, devices. And really what this means is you could have your own sort of local secure cloud. So if you had, you know, several different physical computers around your house or in, or in different places, you could also run cubes on those and connect those together. So you could have, if you don't even trust a hypervisor on one machine with these extensions, you could run some applications on entirely different hardware. Now imagine the different types of applications you could be running here, because it doesn't have to be super complicated weather mapping to machinery. It could be simple things that could spin up on different Raspberry Pis. I mean, this could be low-cost computing infrastructure that you combine this with. That gets pretty interesting. 
So they're taking all these radical ideas and calling this Cube's Air. And it's sort of the next step on their roadmap, trying to figure out this concept of security through compartmentalization and making it applicable to more scenarios. Obviously, as we talk about on the TechSnap program all the time, even with some of the primitives offered by the cloud, like getting security right is just hard. And I think the Cubes project has just been putting in a ton of work of trying to piece apart complicated computer workflows and making that work. Now, of course, they've really been focused before on the desktop. um, But I think looking at more things, hybrid mode, air-gapped mode, cloud mode. Cubes as a service. Right, yeah. It's it's really, you know, it's trying to get, it gets to some of the fundamentals of just what are the security advantages? Why are they architected this way? And I think it's it's really forward-thinking for the project, and I'm sure it will mean that we're going to keep talking about Cubes on the TechSnap program. Our next story is a chance for all of us to live a little vicariously through one group's opportunity to completely rebuild their network just how they want it. So over at a university in France, there's a non nonprofit student organization that provides the internet access for basically everyone on the campus. Um, and they recently, the, the whole university, they moved away from their, their historic campus and were moving into a freshly built one. So picked up, moved everyone over, and they were looking to replace their kind of antiquated network design with something new and modern and really excited to explore the opportunities of, like, what was possible. Yeah, and I think when you think of new and modern, it's not just, like, the network has to be reliable and solid and coverage It's not just everywhere. those fancy 10, 10G switches. And yeah. Th- yeah. I mean, you need more than that, right? You need management, you need authentication, you need all those kind of things to really say it's modern. Yeah, some of their key objectives, you know, in this whole process was, okay, so first, reliable authentication. They want, you know, only people with currently valid subscription should have internet access. You don't want to just, you know, let people abuse your internet access, uh, especially if your network isn't geared for that. Number two, an optimal user experience. So you you really don't want your users to have, to have a difficult time on your network, especially if they're living there and they're using it every day. Yeah, the students. Yeah. And then three, you know, just to be responsible administrators, they really did want traceability. They want to make sure that they could tell, you know, if you do have a security event, that that's not all obfuscated by your network setup. But what strikes me as a particular challenge for the administrators going into this is they don't issue the machines. They don't have a standard image they can deploy with a standard antivirus. They really have no control over the machines because the students own the machines. Yeah, exactly. They're not even running an agent or anything else. So it's a different scenario when you really, you know, and it's not one I am very accustomed to, but where anyone can just walk up, plug into your your wall jack and be on your network and you have to make that easy, supported and secure. So I think it's interesting to compare, you know, their, the new setup they're aiming for with the, the solution they had at the previous campus. Right. And that was basically your your bare bones MAC address registration. So their predecessors had created a website for people to enter their MAC address. And this means like you're new, you're a new student, you're moving in. You got to go find the MAC addresses of all the things that you want to use in your dorm room, especially now, you know, these days you have console, your, your game phone, console, your tablet, your smart bulb in the wall, any of those things you need to go find, identify, and then go to a website and register it with the university before it'll be allowed to use the <laughs> network. Plus, there's some other problems here. Um, once you've registered, that actually has to go get synced down to all the switches near you so that they'll actually let you on. Oh, yeah, of course. This is actually very similar to what we did when I worked for a school district. The students would come to our tech office and we'd have tech offices in each building and we would take their devices and we'd get the MAC addresses off it, enter it all into a custom website we had built, hit submit, and that eventually would propagate to our DHCP server, which would then start providing an IP address. You know, and and to be clear, like that definitely works uh one one particular hang-up i thought was kind of amusing is well if you can't get on the internet or even the internet to go register your mac you know how do you do that so then students are either having to go to a computer lab to and with their list of mac addresses or using their cell phone to connect to the website it's it's really not ideal at least in this scenario if it's just you know if it's a small installation uh, or like staff that aren't changing regularly it's not a bad you know it's not a big deal for the students they brought them they brought the devices to us we sat down at our machines Oh uh, yeah. Okay. So that would that would scale maybe a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it doesn't scale so well because you at the beginning of the year, at the beginning of each school year, you have a huge line out the door of students that want to get their new devices on the network, and then somebody has to go back around and remove all of the old devices. Yikes. So they were really looking to you know to try to avoid having to do that. So their first attempt, and this is a story of you know several attempts of trying to to work around this. Exploring a new solution is often like that. You don't get it right on the first time around. And so what they what they started out with is they're going to use 802.1x authentication 
for wired networks. Now, you've probably seen this particular protocol used uh, a lot in like enterprise wireless networks when you join a wireless network and then you have to go enter like your domain credentials or other things. That's the uh, idea. Yeah, ex- right. Exactly. You already have these credentials somewhere. Why yeah. can't you use them yeah. for network authentication as well? Um, so it's not all, you don't see it a ton on wired networks, but it, it does work there. You know, it's a network just the same. Uh, so that that's attempt one here. That would I would bet in practice tend to work better if you had total control over the devices on the network again because then you could verify that the OSs and all of the applications supported that authentication mechanism. When you don't control the devices, you get all these weird esoteric things that, like Chromecast, for example, that completely die on this kind of stuff. So in this model, here's the basic workflow. So, so you're a student, you plug your new laptop right into the wall jack. First things first, the switch and your computer start ex- start exchanging EAP packets. Now, EAP is the extensible authentication protocol, and it's used in exactly the scenarios um, in wireless networks and point-to-point communications to, to secure yeah. them. Um, so that starts an exchange. You send your credentials over in one of the many different EAP formats. Then the switch sends those over to a radius server. Okay. That actually handles the authentication, uh-huh. you know, makes the decision yes or no, tells the switch. And then if you're authorized, the switch actually enables your port. Then you get a normal DHCP discover request and you're on the network. Okay. And in theory, if this is a Windows network, you could tie that radius server to the Active Directory domain. So it's the same username and password that they would use for their domain login. Exactly. Now, the biggest problem they had right out of the gate with this approach is that they aren't meeting their traceability goal. Because here, the the DHCP server, it doesn't know the username and password. It doesn't pass that information, right? The switch is handling that level. The DHCP server is on another level. And so you end up with a dynamically assigned address to some MAC address and You've lost the username. You don't know who that is. And so when they do things on your network, you don't know how to associate with them. And considering this, they had, you know, there's multiple ways of solving this problem. In this case, I think they chose a rather interesting one, which I hadn't really considered before. And that is to use a different VLAN for each user. I'm sorry, a VLAN for each user? Yes. And I know it sounds strange, but it does have some interesting advantages just unrelated to authentication. Um, You get some sort of home sharing feature. So to be clear, this is not per device. It's per user. Right. And so you log in, whether that is in your dorm room where you're running a little, you know, a home server or some other connected devices, or you've brought your laptop to the library, you're working there. It looks like you're just on your same home LAN. And then in theory, my device in the library could be communicating with my device back in my dorm room, which maybe is like a free NAS box or a, or some other device. And it's all to the devices, one local network. Yeah, right. So you got a printer back in your dorm room. You can print from, from basically anywhere as long as you're connected to that. That Plus there's some other, you know, other nice things like if you have broadcast storms or broadcast-based attacks, those will be constrained by the VLANs. The other thing that's nice is because it's students, this is just how it worked when they were at home. Right. Yeah. You don't have to deal with trying to learn this new network architecture or trying to understand that. It should just work. And you can prevent some of the you know real stupid, malicious things. People who've left, you know, just simple window shares open and their their dorm mates can see them, things like that. Now, I know there is a hard limit on the amount of VLANs you can have on a network. Yeah. So if you're going to consider this approach, you should note that, that according to the spec, that's 4,094. Uh, in their case, they've got like 2,000 or so students. They don't expect a huge, you know, a, a 100% growth here. Mm. So for them, they are okay with making that compromise, but definitely note that well if you're considering this implementation. Besides those other advantages, they've also used this per VLAN method to have that traceability feature that they want. So when the radius when the radius server sends back yes authorized, it also includes a VLAN ID. And they've basically set up some some careful scripting, some cleverness so that that's always matched. The user always gets the same VLAN ID. And so you always know, you know, basically they have some magic that picks a subnet, but you always know once that's registered that, yep, those are Bob's IPs. This is Bob's device. All right. So, so far, you know, you're feeling pretty good. You've got this proof of concept working. You've liked these VLAN advantages. You're feeling pretty clever. User experience seems pretty solid. Yeah, definitely. Is it so solid? Well, unfortunately, it looks like a lot of their testing was first done using Linux and Mac devices. I can sympathize. You know, a lot of a lot of geeks end up having those. So those are the tools you have available. That's what you test with, at least first, of course. Unfortunately, a lot of their subscribers, as is often the case, are more likely to be using Windows. So they call students subscribers. In, oh, because it's network subscribers, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Mobile devices seem to handle this okay. Mac OS and Linux seem to handle this okay. But Windows seems to have some EAP compatibility issues. Yeah. So, okay. So not 
only do, does it is it super painful. Even in Windows 10, it takes like more than 15 clicks in sort of obscure areas just to enable support for 802.1x on wired connections. So that's like a big pain right there. You try to plug it in, you find this like, do you get like a printout when you move into the door? That's not really what you want. Plus, they also discovered that Windows 7 only supports two out of the many EAP authentication protocols. And guess what? Neither of them are the good secure options. Oh, man. Oh, Windows 7. You are becoming our new XP. Unfortunately, this basically puts them in the position of having a choice between a terrible user experience for the people, you know, on Windows 7 and and those operating systems or knowingly storing their users' passwords with known weak hashing algorithms. And neither of those options is really is is it. It's not a choice I want to make. Are they able to implement the higher security protocols for the clients that do support it and then backwards support Windows 7? Yes. So so basically what they what they ended up doing, they tried it two ways. Uh, the first way was, all right, well, attempt to use the, you know, the radius based authentication method. And if that didn't work, fall back to the older MAC address registration based method. Unfortunately, that also ran into some problems where basically to get it to work, once you'd started using the MAC based approach, you could no longer use the radius method. And so they had to have this long timeout where basically it's like, well, we don't know if they're going to use radius or if they're capable. So we just wait and wait. And once that timeout is cut, okay, now we'll switch over and we'll authenticate them this way. Right. And so that's not a great user experience. What they were able to do is flip that on its head and think about it this way. First, just attempt the Mac authentication attempt because if they've taken the time to register that, right, then you, you would only do that if you if you really needed to because your device didn't support the more secure methods that they've made available. So do that first. If you don't find the Mac register, you can fast fall back and then expect that they'll use the radius-based method. They sort of sum it all up and say, in hindsight, we believe that combining the 802.1x authentication and dynamic VLAN assignment was the right call. The added benefits of per-subscriber VLANs, such as home sharing, are appreciated and even praised by our users. Yet in 2018, the support for different EAP variations used by 802.11.1x is still heterogeneous. Thus, while the connection process is straightforward on most devices, it's not yet optimal for Windows. But we do hope, however, that Microsoft is going to improve compatibility in Windows in the future. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. They really had a lot of success. Um, They got this working with wireless as well and Mac, Linux, iOS, Android, all of them pretty much were able to support one form of this or another without having to fall back. So Windows was the big headache. And it's just, I like that this is a hopeful story that they were able to make some good stuff work. And it's got that real world twist that we all know, you know, also well is it turns out everyone's just running old busted, old busted crap that you have to put up with in a real life admin scenario. TechSnap.ting.com. Go there for a smarter way to do mobile support the show and $25 towards a new device or your monthly service. TechSnap.ting.com. Ting is pay for what you use. No contract, no service agreements, nationwide mobile service. A fair price for however much you talk, text, and data you use. One of the Ting advantages is their control panel. You're in control all the time. You can see your usage at a glance. You can set usage alerts, turn devices off, disable certain aspects of your service. And one of the nice things about Ting, if you're savvy, is they have CDMA and GSM. And you can use that when you travel or whatever works better in your area. Head over to techsnap.ting.com to support the show and celebrate Ting's sixth birthday. I've got to be going in on four years now, so I'm kind of a Ting hipster, I guess. And that kind of is awesome. They're giving away some swag, though, and you can find out more by going to techsnap.ting.com and then go to their blog. The first 100 customers who have been with Ting from the start are getting a T-shirt automatically, but everyone else gets to participate as well. There's three different ways to win, and they have details on their blog. It's just a better way to do mobile. No contracts, pay for what you use, $6 a month for the line. techsnap.ting.com. 400 lines of Python code, an online database with an API, and the open source Metasploit project all equal a whole heap of hand wrangling this week. That is for sure. And people are, I think, a little a little a freaking out over this. Maybe more than they should. We'll, t- we'll get into that. But the script kitties have been unleashed, Wes. They sure have. And their new tool is Autosploit. Now, what is Autosploit? Well, it's basically a mashup of two heavy hitters in this industry. So it it uses the Shodan search engine, which is, it's really, it's not your grandma's search engine. No, instead, it's trawling the web looking for open web servers or, and other, you know, c- common internet ports. So it's, consider it like a, a big centralized end map that runs all over and is commonly used to find vulnerable hosts, hosts that are just open to the, to the public. 
super useful for this kind of research. And then they use Metasploit. And Metasploit is one of the most popular exploit frameworks. And an exploit framework, it's really just this package to make it easy to add new exploits, right? So you obviously have some shared functionality between exploits. Metasploit wraps that all up in a tool set, some command line tools to interface and actually run those, and a whole suite of exploits baked right in. Metasploit's one of those great tools because when we say there's a new vulnerability on the show, somebody's already submitted a new framework to Metasploit to take advantage of that vulnerability. They're really on top of stuff. You can refresh these definitions and get and get new stuff. But these, as Wes is saying, have all been disparate, isolated tools that professionals would generally tie together to go after a target. But no longer do you have to do the hard work of stringing all these different things together. No, no. And of course, it's free, it's open source, and it's already up on GitHub. It sure is. They've, like, they've chosen some, you know, they've chosen Metasploit modules that they think will work that focused on trying to get remote code execution and open up shells for you to use, really to, to take over, you know, take over vulnerable boxes. And so there are some questions of like, well, does this, do you really need this tool? In some senses, it's simple in that basically it's connecting to Shodan. You can give it some search parameters and it goes and tries to find a bunch of hosts that match that search. And then it pulls that down, scripts over Metasploit and starts running exploits on those hosts. Right. And the argument has been you're enabling script kitties. It's a click to hack tool. It's too easy now, and people are going to go crazy with this. So there was only one thing for your TechSnap crew to do. We downloaded it, installed it, and gave it a go. And it's there's a few things. You have to install a couple of Python modules like the Shodan and the Blessings module. You have to have PostgreSQL installed and Apache. You also have to install Metasploit on your system. You have to create a Shodan.io account and go generate an IP key. And... You also need to have remote connections inbound for Metasploit to work correctly. So you have to have firewall rules set up to do all of that. But once you've done all of those things, you can run this Python script. That's a lot of prerequisites right there. So it's not so click to hack as the media is positioning to begin with, because that's not one click, my friend. No, right. I mean, you need to you need to understand some some Linux systems. Most likely, you need to understand how to spin one of those up to get all the firewall rules configured, install that software, and tie it together. So, I mean, it's not a super high barrier, but you don't just click one button and have this working. Once you input your API key and you have everything working, you give it the search parameter, and the search parameter could be SMB, SSH, IIS, Apache. We did all of the above, and uh, we found systems that were at the DoD that were at Amazon, that were in China. I mean, we found quite a bit of different systems that came back as potentially exploitable. When it comes back with your results from the search parameter, it essentially puts it all into a host list. And then you go to the next screen, which is uh, just different keys that you activate, like number four goes to the exploit screen. It then begins working down that list. And like Wes said, it fires up the Metasploit console and it just scripts through that process and it tries every individual exploit for that category for each host in the list over and over again. But every time it fails, you have to exit out that host before it'll move on to the next one. So it's also, again, not so click and run. It's a very tedious, manual, slow, interactive process. You know, yeah, in our experience, it's Obviously, the idea is powerful, right? You could empower people with little to no knowledge to get this right. Uh, especially they do have some some of it is packaged up in a Docker. So if you set that up right, it, maybe it could be yeah. pretty close to this. But the script is definitely a little flaky. It's clearly new, you know, not battle tested code. You put in the, a couple of wrong parameters, the whole thing will crash. As you were mentioning, it's it's automated, but really only kind of semi-automated. And a lot of the exploits, unless you really knew what you were doing in the setup of Metasploit already, didn't quite work right out of the box. So while the idea, I think, is is maybe worth sort of the, you know, the scare factor that people have with this, the actual implementation doesn't really deliver. Well, I think it will get there. It is open source. I think you've already seen several pull requests. Yeah, pull requests, issues, filed. Yeah. Um, I would say it'll get there. The release has triggered quite a bit of doomsayers who say that it's going to bring down the web. But to some degree, that's the same exact outcry, almost verbatim, when Metasploit was announced. Yeah, you know, it's and it's a difficult line to walk between, you know, having open access to some of these data and tooling. Uh, Metasploit can be super useful for scanning your own software. So there's, you know, yeah. there's oftentimes very legitimate use cases. I feel like when you make these tools easier, you do make it possible for script kiddies and people with nefarious intentions to go after targets. But you also make it possible for sys administrators and people that are building infrastructure to test their own infrastructure. And the easier you make that, the more likely they'll try. And the reason I mention that is when when distributions started shipping that were specifically target built for penetration testing 
And when they started shipping tools like Nessus Scanner and Metasploit, it enabled a new aspect of my career for me. It just opened the doors because the easier they made that, it was it was something that became accessible and approachable for me. So I could start with these basic tools and then begin working my way into a new industry. It sort of opened the door for me. And this is going to open the door for a lot of other people. It could take people in our audience today. They, if they know how to install Apache and Postgres and Metasploit, they could use this tool to check their own network. And it's pretty powerful. It's also a loose cannon. By default, it goes out and scans the whole web. It pulls or it doesn't scan the web. It pulls it down from this database. It, it's, you know, in that list was the Department of Defense. It's not exactly a log I want to be on. So you have to use it responsibly. But once people begin to get access to this, they can secure themselves better. Yeah, and I think that's where this one maybe fails the test is, you know, maybe some maybe some more automation around Metasploit could be useful, but the integration with Shodan, it, it just seems it really a little seem too... Like go after the public. Right, exactly. And unless you are a responsible, careful, considerate security researcher, that's not something just anyone should be doing. Yeah, it's, it's too blunt of a tool right now. Yes, and I also think you fall into that trap too of, you know, you're... You've got all these things configured, but you didn't configure them and you don't really understand them. So if you do want to learn how to use Metasploit, if you do want to go you know, play around on Shodan, understand what kind of data it has, I think that's great and, and you should be encouraged. Um, but maybe, one, this isn't even that easy. So I think maybe what you should do is just actually go install these firsthand, test against your own infrastructure and actually learn how the frameworks work. I do think this is a good reminder that you know, the easier this gets when you have nothing better to do. It's so easy to spin up a new, you know, new VPS somewhere, start running some of these tools. So it's a good time to remind yourself, go check your own hosts, go make sure you know what's running on your systems and that you've properly set them up and that you're actually monitoring them. Yeah. So let's talk about a way you can do that a little bit, because that was my first thought, too. After we played around with uh, Autosploit, I thought, okay, Am I on these lists? Yeah. Am I gonna Am I gonna start getting scanned? Do I need to worry about my rigs? And so I wanted to look into a tool that would protect against port scan attacks. And I found PSAD, which stands for Port Scan Attack Detection. And it's a piece of software that actively monitors your firewall logs to see if a scan attack or event is in progress. It then can alert administrators via email to take action, or it can take further actions on its own. So I set it up on my system. It's on an Ubuntu box, it's just app get install psad, P-S-A-D. Then you go through and configure IP tables to start logging if it's not already. Once that's set up, you just restart psad and it begins monitoring your logs. It'll also auto-detect if you have journal CTL and it'll monitor that to see if you're being attacked. And then you can set the different danger levels in which it will alert you. You can say, what's your port scan threshold? So how many ports get scanned before I get triggered? The default is one. I set mine to three. So if you knock on port 80, I'm not going to trigger this thing. But if you knock on a couple other ports, it's going to alert me. And there's lots of different options you can set. So I will link to a guide that I followed. It's really simple. It's over on DigitalOcean, actually. So you know it's going to be done well. Just go to techsnap.systems slash 354 and you'll see my link to the guide. Definitely worth checking out. Some other things I would say is, I mean, one, you know, use Metasploit, use Nmap, scan your own hosts. Of course, use things like Netstat and SS and whatever other tools on your host to check, you know, both inside and outside. And, you know, especially for Linux hosts, I really like using some tools. I use Firehole, but there's other IP tables managers. And a lot of those make it really simple to have a deny by default configuration. Now, this isn't super convenient for your home machine, but if you're setting up a purpose-built server, you almost by definition have to know what's running there. And I think it's a great exercise to go, you know, when you install a new service, it just reminds you that, yes, this is listening. It does need connections. You have to go enable it in your firewall too. And of course, you can do some things to automate those, but I think it's just a great way to be able to go look at a server and be like, oh, these are the only things that this server should be running and should be servicing. I think that's a great advice. And one of the things that really struck me about PSAD is that it's monitoring my logs. I like that a lot. And so I think the key to using it effectively is going to be properly configuring your danger levels, setting up the email alerts, and then follow up on that and make sure it's dialed in for the first few weeks. Because this tool, coupled with other things like Tripwire and, and great logging, can really be substantial tools to help detect and prevent intrusion attempts or remote scans. And we've talked about other tools like uh, Fail to Ban and others in the past that you can combine to really stack and, and protect yourself against easy, automated, scripted attacks. 
ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Enterprise server and storage solutions for open source. They have a unique, cost-effective, and reliable approach to building servers for you for exactly the workload you need. They're a pretty remarkable company. They've been around for ages. They have over 4,000 customers, long-term clients. They have a huge stake in the storage industry. They work with partners and the developers that are working on the code that powers these devices. And they're truly leaders in open source with TrueNAS and FreeNAS. And they've contributed over a million lines of open source code upstream. Check them out for your next server, storage, or compute need. And while you're there, ixsystems.com slash techsnap, head over to their blog. You know, I love to mention this because Michael Dexter, once again, knocking it out of the park with a clear explanation of the differences between open ZFS and regular old ZFS. What's the big difference and why do people interchange them accidentally sometimes? Well, Michael Dexter does a really great job of explaining it in just a few paragraphs. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap for your next server storage compute need. And just to learn more, go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Put them to the test. See what they can build for you and learn more. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Thanks for going to techsnap.system slash contact for sending in your question, follow-up, and feedback to the show. And we start out this week with Mr. Vera Tunde. He says, hello, Chris and Wes. I just wanted to say great piece on Kubernetes. Although I thought you implied that it was only for large-scale deployments um, and for your average sysadmin, it might be way over the top. So I wanted to introduce you to something that's a bit simpler for just a few dozen containers and maybe a small swarm of two or three nodes. It's called Portainer. And it comes as a Docker image. It prevents a very nice web GUI to monitor and manage Docker instances. And Veratunda, like a boss, included an email completely written down in Markdown with tons of screenshots. So I have the complete thing rendered and linked in our show notes if you want to see what Portainer.io looks like. He also mentions it has a really nice method to easily install Docker images using app templates. And like in the screenshot, it's it's a one-click deployment for Nginx or Apache or Postgres or MySQL or GitLab. Just click. This is really nice. And a a service management system. And of course, you got to have your stats and dashboards. He says it's a breeze to manage all of this. You can pull everything together in the UI. It also has a command line system you can use. Easy to sort your containers. Network management is fairly easy. He says, I found it's easy to manage Docker bridges with this. Portainer does all of it on the fly as well. Check it out. This is such a great email. I don't think I've yeah, ever gotten this nice of email. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. <laughs> Super well formatted, obviously. And then just, I had not heard of Portainer, and it looks really handy. You know, it can be awkward if you're using a lot of the apps, but maybe you don't interact with the Docker CLI or the Kubernetes CLI or, or any of that on a day-to-day basis. Keeping it straight, and there's a lot of concepts when you're working with containers. So something like this, like an easy-to-use UI, but powerful enough that you can actually yeah. do the administration and, you want. And and well done. I mean, I feel like this is well done enough that you could create a few user accounts and give some developers access if you need developers the ability to spin up their own containers. Yeah. I think this is this would be pretty palatable by them. He wraps it up and says, all in all, it's a very nice Docker management tool and it's super simple to set up as a Docker image itself. It'll also not interfere if you use Docker from the command line. It will reflect containers, added or volumes, etc. That is great. The Swarm support in particular is nice too. Docker Swarm is a Kubernetes alternative built right into the Docker engine. So yeah, if you don't need you know robust, large-scale deployments or, or anything like that, but you do want to have the notion of a cluster and some of those Swarm features, this looks like an easy way to get started. Thank you, Mr. Tunda. Thank you very much. All right, our next email comes in, and I think it was Carl. I don't know if I grabbed his... I'm sorry about that, Carl. Let me see if I... Well, he wrote in. He'll know who he is because he wrote in asking about iSCSI. He says, hi, Wes and Chris. Likes the new reboot. And he says, I have a customer who runs a small Windows domain. The domain controller has limited storage, though. So I set up a free NAS box for some file sharing. I ended up struggling, though, getting free NAS on the domain. So I did a bit of research and kind of came up with a workaround. I found a doc on how to set up an iSCSI share. I used iSCSI to give the Windows server a block-level device. Then I formatted it as NTFS, shared it out, and success. The doc I used really didn't help explain, though, how iSCSI works. Could you guys do a breakdown of how iSCSI works? Because I'm thinking about using iSCSI for a few other network storage issues. 
Are there really any downsides? Well, actually, Carl, I think that's a great way to go. In fact, I would recommend that almost in every single case, even if you had gotten the Samba stuff working in the domain integration, this is really a better way to go. iSCSI works by transporting block-level data between an iSCSI initiator on a server and an iSCSI target on a storage device, which in your case could be a free NAS box, it could be a Windows server, it, it, it ranges. The iSCSI protocol encapsulates SCSI commands, which you might remember from the good old days, stands for Small Computer Systems Interface. This is Internet Small Computer Systems Interface. It assembles the data in packets for the TCP IP layer, and then packets are sent over the network using IP. And it is, as far as the operating system concerned, another block device. And there's different ways you can set this up in a large-scale environment. You'd likely want to give it on a dedicated storage switch, isolate it out from the rest of your network so it's not on the same broadcast domain, things like that. But in a simple setup, a couple of users, one server, you're probably fine even doing it on your LAN as, as long as you got gigabit. Right. Yeah. I mean, those those can be some of the downsides, right? It is, it is still, you know, if you have extreme performance needs, you're probably going to need to go something like fiber channel. But for, for home deployments, for small scale stuff, definitely worth testing it out. Um, one way I like to think about it is you have different layers of of wrapping things, you know, o- over over the internet. So here down way at the base, you have iSCSI, where it's you know it's, it's like you're interacting with a physical disk, and then this helpful helpful little protocol is wrapping that up, throwing it over the network for you, so you don't have to be physically attached. Uh, up one level from that, there's something at least in the Linux world called NBD, network block device. And so instead of being presented as a physical disk, instead the kernel sees like another block device at that layer. And so you can have one machine that you know actually does the driver talk to the physical device and then exports this abstract Linux block device over the network. And then at the top, you have these file sharing protocols, like we're talking about things like NFS or Samba, where here it's actually a network file system. So you don't think about even a block device, you just think about a file system. So I think you're set to go with iSCSI. The only advice we might leave you with is consider putting it on a dedicated network interface and consider, if it's a lot of traffic, putting it on its own switch or if nothing else, perhaps its own VLAN. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. But don't worry, you can find so many other great episodes, including the next one over at techsnap.systems slash subscribe. Yeah, get the show every single week there or just plug it right into your favorite RSS reader. It's techsnap.systems slash RSS and it's slash contact for your feedback and your questions. I'm at Chris LAS. He's at Wes Payne. The whole Jupiter Broadcasting Network is at Jupiter Signal. Thank you guys for being here. We'll see you next week. 